the butterfly flew a circle around me and then it flew over to the small house I'd be staying in and it flew a circle around that house and then it flew off. So I couldn't get a picture of it. And I realized that moment was just for me. And the women that were around me were saying that the feminine spirit of the land uh, manifests as a butterfly and that she had come to greet me. Welcome to the Wild Foundation Podcast, Voices of Wilderness. Through the stories our guests share, you'll learn about how we can and must protect wilderness for a healthy future. We hope to leave you a little more inspired to speak out, take action, make a difference, and find solutions to the biodiversity and climate crises. Some of the best stories are shared when we're taken back to our original home, nature. In our Campfire Wilderness Stories series, our guests will share their stories of fear, wonder, and connection that makes their link to the natural world a unique and inspiring one. Today, we're sitting down with Amy Lewis, Wild's Chief Executive Officer. Amy is committed to building global support for the protection of half of Earth's lands and seas, while also strengthening and expanding the land tenure of Indigenous peoples, nature's best guardians. What does the wilderness inspire in her? What has she learned from working so closely with traditional cultures? What drives her to fight for the protection of wilderness every day? Pull up a chair around our campfire and immerse yourself in Amy's exciting stories. Let's dive in. Amy, what a pleasure to have you on again. You are obviously a longtime colleague of mine and now the leader of WILD, and we could not be more excited to be chatting with you about how you chose WILD, how you got to be involved with WILD, and where you hope to see WILD going in the future. Can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Yeah. Hello, everybody. And Jackie, it's great to be talking with you. I'm Amy Lewis. I am the new CEO of Wild, and I'm just really happy to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. This is exciting. We, I feel like you have the craziest, busiest schedule in the world. So getting to chat with you for 30 minutes uninterrupted is like the biggest treat in the world. It's like a kid with the best glazed jelly donut or whatever. So, oh, well, I about you, Jackie, because you're like the nicest, most positive, most like fun person in the world. Thanks, Ames. I appreciate that. So can you just kind of bring us to, if you can, in a synopsis kind of way, bring us to where we are today. How did you end up at Wild and why Wild? Right. Okay. So I think let's just kind of start like from before the beginning, right? I come from a working class background and I come from a background of essentially union leaders and people who were working with their colleagues to support each other and to represent their interests. And I think that this has probably had 
more of an impact on my life than I realized initially, because I think it kind of ingrained in me a very basic assumption, one I wasn't really self-aware of for a long time, that there's strength in numbers and that we're all stronger when we're working together. So my early career, I was a community organizer. I was working in human rights and immigration. Eventually, I, after Hurricane Katrina, I went back to grad school for environmental policy and began working on my PhD at the intersection of public administration, environmental policy, and international relations. And it just wasn't I mean, I loved academia. If I have a religion, it's curiosity, and the university is a temple to curiosity. But the challenge for me was that there was this sense that we are entering this period of time where action is so crucial, where we really have to put our money where our mouth is. And I just felt that in academia, the ideas and the research that I was producing would not hit society or become actionable for decades. And that was too long for me. So I was starting to look into getting back into NGOs. The job at the Wild Foundation opened up. This group wasn't quite working on exactly what I was doing in environmental policy, which was around pesticide policy, but it was similar enough. Wilderness, working together, it seemed to hit all the right notes for me. And indeed it did, because if there's such a thing as like a soulmate job, this is it for me. So I've really enjoyed the past eight years at Wild. Well, you know, I'm a very emotional person. So you saying that the soulmate job part brings tears to my eyes because, well, the fact that I started at Wild in 2017 and now that's, well, that's like been six years, right? And you were there for two years before that. In the last six years, I have, you could not describe it more perfectly. You live and breathe this work and the dedication that you give to action to creating action around the world is absolutely amazing. And that's why you're a mentor to me. And I'm always in awe of you. I didn't know that. Like all the, I, there's been a couple of people who come up to me this year and said, I mentor them. And I like hardly spend any time with them. And now I'm like, geez, I should do a way better job. But also I have so much respect for these other people and for you. Like I learn from you. So the fact that you think I'm mentoring you is a little bit mind blowing to me. So I guess, I mean, in the last, well, in your eight years at Wild, how have you seen, Wild has always hinged on being very collaborative. It's, you know, we really believe in bringing everyone to the table and finding solutions together and moving forward together. How do you feel that Wild has kept that ball rolling and made that more of a focus point in the environmental world? First, let's, let's get to the notion of collaboration, because I think there's some misconception out there about it, that it's like this nice thing to have. It's something that we should do to be good people, but it's maybe not the most effective, like a more command and control type of approach would be more effective. And I'm just out there to burst everybody's bubble about that, because collaboration is literally the only way we're going to protect the biosphere, right? And, you know, in the West, we have this really ingrained notion of private property, which I think has led us to the assumption that, like, we can go it alone. We could just buy up a bunch of land and be responsible on ourselves for ourselves on that land. And, and somehow that's going to add up to where 
we need to be. But the fact is, most of the space on this planet is either in kind of lawless areas that don't have any government jurisdictions, like the oceans, or they fall under government jurisdictions, and not just government jurisdictions, but multiple agencies and multiple actors have jurisdiction over the same pieces of land. And if we know anything about governments, governments respond to their constituencies. At least democratic governments do. You can even make an argument that in some cases, some authoritarian governments do. And so when we bring together very visible publics to make demands about how that land should be used, that challenges the narrow interests who maybe don't want to use the land in the best way for nature or for the rest of society. And so collaboration is utterly and completely necessary. It is the foundation of any effective, large-scale, planetary-scale conservation strategy. But getting to your question, like how is Wild doing that? I think that because of Wild's early visionary leadership, Ian Player, Makubu Ntambela, and Vance Martin, they really saw you know, Makubu identified this idea of an indaba, pulling together the tribes from around the world to come up with coordinated actions and to coordinate on values around the protection of wilderness. And so I think that from our inception, this has been our key method. Like, we have to bring together multiple actors at the table, broad constituencies, in order to actually win the war and not just win a couple of battles. And we've been doing this since 1976 with the First World Wilderness Congress. Our congresses aren't just places for people to gather and talk. They're literally places where civil society and governments and other groups come together to identify common values, common definitions, and to propose actions based on that. Those actions and resolutions become the basis for policies that WILD promotes at the IUCN and in other areas. And so all of this comes from building a community first, a community that later on becomes a coalition and can, has already agreed to take the actions needed to support the policies that they've identified as important. It seems like our world today could use another World Wilderness Congress, perhaps. Just, just throw them out there. Yeah, strange that you mentioned that, Jackie. I mean, maybe something's in the works. I don't know. Wig, we don't know. <laughs> we'll see what's to come. Yeah, I love Wild, and I, I love that that's the approach that we take. In terms of taking that idea of collaboration and putting it in practice, and from what you've experienced with the work that you've done, do you have any stories to share of real collaboration that you can kind of share with us and that you've seen become successful? Because I think, like you said, people might think that it's this less effective way to work or kind of, I don't want to say woo-woo way to work, but just like the softer way to work, right? And we get things done. I was going to say a, a bad word there, but like we get things done and we get things done by working together. And I'd love for people to feel a sense of hope in that and a sense of encouragement and that they can do that too. And so what have you seen that you can share with people in your real experiences, like a story that you could give us or because I know you're very good at stories. So what can you share with us on that front? Okay. So I will not name any names because I mean, I have trim and part of collaboration is that even when 
there's resistance or even when there's maybe disagreements, like you still have like huge amounts of respect for the people who are in the trenches with you and for the institutions that are in the trenches with you, right? And so, you know, there's no desire to out anybody or to demonize them or anything like that. It's just trying to create the middle ground and to forge that space where we can walk forward together. But in the relatively recent past, there's a pretty prominent institution that Wilde was working in, and that institution has recently recognized for the first time the scientific necessity of protecting half the planet. And given that it's a conservation institution, that seems like a no-brainer, but it's actually really hard. And there's good reasons for why that institution is perhaps slow to adopt these things because they answer to multiple constituencies too, like governments, and they need to protect the entire portfolio of their work. And so it's hard for them to maybe stick their neck out on difficult issues. But that recognition occurred, but it didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't just like, oh, look, look at scientific consensus done. We're going to recognize this, right? It took a strong and disciplined coalition where we all agreed, okay, this needs to be done. And even though each and every one of us had slightly different priorities and disagreements over those priorities, we had to have enough trust in each other and commitment to the goal. And I don't know, probably quite a bit of luck as well to actually hang together in the final moments when there were intentional or unintentional forces that could have very easily ripped us apart and certainly were about to do so. And without kind of the relationships that had been built up over months and years, without the commitments of the various people, without, you know, a lot of research and basically being able to bring all of our strengths together in different ways to bear in those final moments, this wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have happened just because Wilde was like, oh, look at this fancy piece of research. Okay, look, look, the scientist says this and a couple of other scientists agree. It wouldn't have happened. It required a coalition. And I can tell you, I had many sleepless nights, <laughs> quite a few tears, a lot of anxiety. And the moment I could not, the moment that decision was made and that institution had formally recognized it, I literally fell to my knees. I was so shocked and I'm still it's so emotional thinking back to it because I didn't think we would do it and yet we did. Don't get me crying, Amy. Oh my gosh. I mean, but those are, it's also, there's something to be said about being able to share that victory with others, right? You know, like there's something to be said about coming together and going through a hardship together to create something amazing and really create change. And I guess a question that I have that comes out of just that story and kind of when I look at the world is we seem to have this mentality of wanting to be saviors for the rest of the world, right? Like one organization is a savior for the rest of the world. One person will change everything. How do we shift from that mentality to what we're trying to do with bringing people together to create much larger change and at a more rapid pace, you know? How do we do that? So, I mean, I think this concept of we want allies, not saviors, really came to light for me as I began to work more closely with Indigenous groups. 
And, you know, indigenous communities are full of strong leaders. They're full of incredibly inspiring examples of courage and vision. And because they um, have been subjected to so much oppression, there's a tendency for people, non-Native people who see that, to want to go in and save them and be the hero. But that also robs perfectly capable and competent communities and individuals of dignity. Dignity that is that becomes a resource for them in the future as they build their communities up and they build their identities up. So, you know, when, as I've been working with the Lakota, there has been over and over again this, you know, we want partners, we want allies, we don't want saviors. This has uh, there's been another dimension added to that recently. So just back from the Western Amazon, we were, we're deepening, Wild is deepening its work with the Yawanawa people there. And as I, first off, the community, the Yawanawa community is absolute paradise. Like it, I mean, imagine like the best hippie commune in the world times 10 and that's what, that's what the Yawanawa are like. So it's like, I mean, I want to move there. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's totally sustainable. It's great. But the challenge is they also need allies in order to achieve some pretty ambitious things that they cannot achieve on their own, both within their territory and outside of it. And as I began to look at the constellation of actors that are around the Yawanawa territory, private interests, government interests, ranchers, drug traffickers, you know, what became more and more apparent to me is the utter and complete mundane nature of the work that needs to be done. Like it's in the Western Amazon, there's jaguars, there's river dolphins, there's all this stuff. And yet it became so not exotic to me as I actually looked at this. And I was aware of the fact that this is, this is the Rainforest HOA Association, right? Like we're trying, the Yawanawa is like one house in the rainforest. And then there's the guy who thinks he's going to do sustainable logging, even though there's no sustainable logging for models for tropical rainforest. And, you know, there's all these other actors and I'm like, and they're all neighbors. And we all have to come together in a meeting and talk it out. And if we can't talk it out, we'll resort to legal authorities. But it's just that it's happening on a much larger scale than your typical homeowner association. And that requires more resources. And I was like, wow, well, if the Amazon's an HOA association, maybe the planet is too. Maybe conservation really is just one big giant like homeowners association. And we should be treating it like that versus treating it like, you know, there's these individuals who are kind of demigods, right? In their khakis off in their remote exotic landscape. No, they're just members of the HOA association along with the rest of us. And we all need to meet as equals to talk it out and to prioritize that just as we would prioritize our own homes and our own neighborhoods. I love that analogy. I mean, because it's so true. And when you say it like that about in, in the Amazon, it really paints a whole different picture in my mind of how they see what they're doing, but also just, I mean, that's their life. Like, this is just, this is where they live. This is what they know. It's a whole different thing. I guess, how do we see the future of WILD moving forward as we've been kind of an incubator organization? We've been an organization that brings people together, kind of, I'll say it, kind of like the glue that, that holds different collaboration or collaborative efforts together. What is our future? Like, where are we going? And what do you 
as the CEO of Wild, what do you hope for us to achieve in the next five to 10 years? Well, I mean, it's all about keeping the planet wild, right? But there's, we can work backwards from that. Okay, so what do we need to do to keep Earth wild? Well, we have to protect at least 50% of the planet. Okay, wow, that's crazy and really difficult. What would be the easiest way to do that? Oh, wow, look, indigenous communities, traditional communities have claims to nearly 50% of the planet. They have treaty claims. They have all sorts of other claims on lands and seas. And we also know that, and I'm, I'm, making, I'm making a distinction here between traditional cultures and indigenous peoples. Traditional cultures are indigenous, but not all indigenous peoples are practicing traditional cultures, right? But we also know that traditional cultures are basically the best stewards of biodiversity. So how can we work as partners and allies with our neighbors, traditional communities, to restore justice to their communities and their land, and to also bring to bear the very practical effects traditional cultures have on the landscape and the seascape. So that's, I think, really how we're going to be attempting to implement Nature Needs Have, is working to build up the support to restore lands to traditional cultures at a large scale, maybe not solely for conservation outcomes, but that also achieve conservation outcomes. That's not the only way to protect half the planet. It's the way I prefer to work. And it's how WILD will be focusing our efforts around Nature Needs Half and keeping Earth wild. And Doing that is going to require building large coalitions of both Native people and non-Native people. And so I anticipate that the events that we have and the structures we put in place over the next few years will to, to, to achieve those coalitions will be focusing on that type of theme. And so this is your sole work. You know, this is your sole job. Why wilderness? Why wild? What ties you to it? It's a really good question. And I guess I don't have a rational answer to it. All I can say is that some of the most moving experiences I've had, some of the places where I've felt most accepted, most at peace, have been in the wild. And just recently when I was in the Yawanawa community, and I was disembarking from the boat. It's a two and a half hour river journey, which follows a 13 hour journey road trip by the worst road I've ever been on. But, um, you know, just as I was disembarking the boat and walking into the rainforest, on the side of the path was this beautiful blue morpho butterfly, which are actually pretty rare. You know, the butterflies, they're blue, but they're not really blue. Their color comes from structure. And it was about the size of my hand. They're pretty rare. You don't even see them a lot in the rainforest. You can only see them in the rainforest. And as I was, I looked up and I saw, I was trying to grab my camera, like I need to capture this butterfly. But the butterfly flew a circle around me and then it flew over to the small house I'd be staying in and it flew a circle around that house and then it flew off. So I couldn't get a picture of it. And I realized that moment was just for me. And the women that were around me were saying that the feminine spirit of the land uh, manifests as a butterfly and that she had come to greet me. 
I love it. I can't, I, I, talking to you is, is brutal for my tear ducts because I am just always left with tears. This stories are such a powerful way to convey emotion, right? And to convey a feeling that a place gives you. The answer lies in that emotion, right? In why you want to protect it, because if something can invoke that feeling inside of you and that peace, I'll say, you know, to me, that story just brings a sense of calm and peace and safety because there's this force that's around you that you don't necessarily have control over, but that you know is part of what's inside of you. It's part of your natural instinct. It just is you. We're part of the web of life. It makes sense that you would want to dedicate your life to protecting that and to building coalitions and groups of people and collaborative efforts who all share that same vision and who want to create large-scale change. Well, thank you for sharing that wonderful story. I'm going to go about my day thinking about it and probably crying some more every time I think about it because it, it, it brings up some really wonderful memories that I have too in wilderness. And so thank you. I really appreciate you sharing all of that. Is there anything else that you'd love to share about wild or about any of our future work or potential teasers for what's to come? Yeah, well, I just want to say that one of the great things about the World Wilderness Congress is that you don't have to be a member of a government delegation. You don't have to be a part of, you know, some large mega corporation to come to this. This was created to engage civil society and create a platform for just regular folks who are passionate and care about the planet and each other. To participate. So if that's something that appeals to you, and if the things that we've talked about today are things that interest you, I definitely go to Wild's website, sign up for our newsletter, because there might be some announcements coming out relatively soon that would be of interest to you. Absolutely. Keep an eye out. Things are coming. Big things are coming. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to chat. Until next time, because I know that there will be a next time. You have endless stories to share with the world and I can't wait for everyone to hear them. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Find us on social media through the Wild Foundation. And if you're feeling inspired, don't hesitate to share this podcast with those around you and maybe even give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the support more than you know, and it's that support that allows our work to continue and evolve.